I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 8th, 2017. Coming up, today we look at the scientific research into the lifespans of Americans. First, we speak with Andrea Tilstra, who co-authored a recent paper on mortality trends in America. Then, we speak with Jay Olshansky, who 10 years ago first predicted the recently observed drop in life expectancy in America. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The history of our solar system is filled with cataclysmic events, usually involving the collisions of large objects. These collisions control the size and distribution of asteroids in the asteroid belt. In fact, planetary scientists have determined that the largest impacts created groups of asteroids that have a common origin. These are com commonly called asteroid families. Each member of an asteroid family was originally part of a larger asteroid, the so-called parent body. Sometime in the past, a parent body was struck by another large object. A collision breaks the parent body into hundreds or more pieces, thus creating a family of asteroids. Last week, a group of planetary scientists reported the discovery of the oldest asteroid family ever seen. Identifying the oldest families is challenging because over time, the asteroids spread out in space, making it hard to identify the members of a family. Each asteroid in the family drifts away from the center of the family in a way that depends on the asteroid's size. Small asteroids drift away faster and further than large asteroids. The scientists used a newly developed search technique to comb through the database of all known asteroids. They were able to demonstrate that a number of asteroids are part of a family created by the destruction of an extremely old asteroid, likely formed 4 billion years ago. By identifying all the families in the main belt, scientists can determine which asteroids formed by collisions and which asteroids might be some of the original material that formed the asteroid belt. Finding original material is key to understanding the conditions in the solar system when our planets formed. This recent discovery, reported last week in the journal Science, helps focus future research concerning the formation of our solar system. Take a deep breath. That air you just took in, what's in it, and how does it affect you? If you're curious about the air we breathe, then see the new ground-level ozone exhibit at the CU Museum of Natural History. This recently opened exhibit explores ozone, the invisible odorless gas that protects us or harms us, depending on where it is. When high in the atmosphere, ozone protects us from dangerous ultraviolet radiation. When near the ground, ozone can be harmful to people, animals, and crops. Since the 1950s, the United States has monitored and regulated the amount of ground-level ozone in our air and in that breath you just took. Learn about this important molecule in our atmosphere at the McKenna Gallery at the CU Museum. This is the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. In a moment, we'll talk in detail with a researcher whose CU Boulder team is challenging a Princeton University assertion 
that the recent decline in U.S. lifespan is due to deaths of despair. The Princeton research team asserts that a recent slight dip in U.S. lifespan comes mainly from white, blue-collar workers who have suffered from increasing rates of suicide and drug overdoses, basically because of lost jobs. A CU Boulder study challenges that assertion. The CU Boulder team says that a more rigorous look at the data shows that changing death rates track more closely with increasing availability of opioid drugs, plus an increase in the likelihood that an American will suffer the health problems that go along with becoming extremely obese. Now, all this might seem like splitting hairs, but different interpretations of data can have long-range effects on U.S. healthcare policy. For instance, would more people live longer if we focus on economic revitalization for blue-collar areas? Or would we get more bang for the buck by limiting the availability of opioid prescriptions and finding other ways to help people manage chronic pain? Here on the KGNU Science Show, we're not going to answer these national healthcare policy questions today, but we are going to look at how data analysis can affect our opinions, including our opinions of how to improve our chances of staying healthy and how to avoid accelerating the inevitable race toward death. With that in mind, let's dig deeper into this topic of what best explains the dropping life expectancy in the United States. Our first guest is Andrea Tilstra from the CU Boulder Department of Sociology. Tilstra is a co-author of a recent study published in the International Journal of, of Epidemiology. Her team's paper is titled, Explaining Recent Mortality Trends Among Younger and Middle-Aged White Americans. Here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender speaking with Andrea Tilstra. My name is Andrea Tilstra. I'm a PhD student at the University of Colorado in the Department of Sociology and a graduate researcher in the population program at the Institute of Behavioral Science. Our study, Brian Masters is the first author and Daniel Simon, another graduate student, is also an author on the paper. And the paper is primarily focused at disentangling this narrative that has been forwarded through previous research as well as through the media. Andrea Tilstra, are men living as long as they used to in the United States or are they dying sooner? The life tables will tell you that men are dying sooner. One thing that researchers have said and newspapers have said is that maybe it's because more men are depressed and so they're doing things in their lives that lead them to kill themselves with drugs or with suicide, etc. and it's because of the economy. Is that an accurate summary of what the media is saying right now? Yes, they're calling these deaths of despair is the title that's been given to them. So they're arguing that these deaths from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol poisonings are primarily driven by feelings of distress and pain. But this idea is that it's only afflicting middle-aged white Americans. That's the narrative that the media has grabbed onto. Okay, so you and your study, Andrea Tilstra, were curious to see if the data from looking at this much more closely would bear out the idea that it's deaths of despair. I do not agree with the title of deaths of despair. From our study, we pulled apart the causes of death and analyzed them individually. And what we find is that the trends for each of these causes of death are very different. And as such, we believe that it's problematic to lump them all together and refer to them as deaths of despair. Well, Andrea Tilstra, if it's not deaths of despair, can you go through each of the categories of these deaths 
and say what you think is going on instead. Certainly. We believe that the primary driver of this is the opioid epidemic in the United States. People might say that the opioids are being used more because more people are despairing. What our data and what our studies show is that the increase in the deaths from drug overdoses tracks right alongside the availability of prescription drugs. This is talked about in other literature outside of our own research, this idea of individuals first get the prescription painkiller, and then when their prescription runs out, or they're no longer able to afford their medication, they seek that medication or that same feeling that's associated with an, with a painkiller elsewhere. And unfortunately, within the United States, that seems to be through heroin, which is more and more frequently being cut with fentanyl. And so these a lot of these deaths can likely be attributed to prescription opioids, but also heroin and fentanyl overdoses. Andrea Tilstra, are you implying that the gateway drug for the opioid epidemic and the deaths from opioids are prescription drugs that are given by a doctor to somebody? I am not implying that. I do not think that our study analyzes that. I think it would be a dangerous assertion to make. However, previous literature and other analyses seem to suggest that that might be the case. Now, your data is looking at where do the trends for rising opioid deaths seem to track with something else that's happening? And in your research, it didn't seem to track with economic upturns and downturns. It instead tracked with what? It tracked alongside the availability of prescription opioids. So we saw in the late 90s when Oxycontin became FDA-approved and readily available, that's when we saw the skyrocket of drug-related deaths. Okay, this seems so ironic. I thought the doctors were giving prescriptions to people to help them only discuss the fact that the tree of these. There's other ways that you say that your study, what are some other causes? Beyond that, and also look at metabolic diseases. Disease related to heart diseases are often associated with obesity. The major points that we were trying to make in the study was, I guess just to reiterate, those major things were one, um, the deaths of despair narrative is a really dangerous road to walk down because that suggests that it's individuals acting solely based on their reactions, feelings, or emotions. That's, I think that's dangerous, and that's not necessarily what our findings suggest. In fact, our findings suggest that there are structural factors at play, including the availability of prescription, and illicit opioid drugs, as well as the increasing obesogenic environment. And that we just kind of, we need to take a step back as, as researchers that when we lump together several causes of death and, and just label them, in this instance, deaths of despair, that that creates a not necessarily true narrative when you pull out and analyze the causes of death by themselves. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that interview. CU Boulder sociologist Andrea Tilstra is a co-author of a recent study in the International Journal of Epidemiology. The paper is titled Explaining Recent Mortality Trends Among Younger and Middle-Aged White Americans.
You're tuned to Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Late last year, for the first time in decades, life expectancy in the United States dropped. This came as a surprise to many people. But over 10 years ago, a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago predicted this and more. His name is Jay Olshansky. He's a world-renowned expert in the science of aging. As for Olshansky's crystal ball, well, it has little to do with magic and more to do with his understanding about how our cells work and how they age. It also helps that he understands statistics. Here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender speaking with Jay Olshansky. Jay Olshansky, you were one of the first people to warn the United States that if we continue with the trend we're going in terms of lifestyle choices, the average lifespan in the United States would go down. That was in 2005 that you did that in the New England Journal of Medicine. Did people believe you? No, <laughs> actually, there were a lot of people that didn't believe us. You know, they said, well, look, the historical trend has been declining mortality, rising life expectancy. Why would we believe that anything is going to turn around? Advances in medical technology are occurring at accelerated pace. And I don't know if you know the story behind why it is that we wrote that article to begin with. I'll bet you were pretty annoyed about something and you said, for heaven's sakes, people, wake up. <laughs> well, it was actually, it was similar to that. I was serving as an advisor to the U.S. Social Security Administration on their forecast of life expectancy. And they were projecting an accelerated increase in life expectancy at age 65, which meant, of course, accelerated declines in mortality over age 65. And they were also projecting accelerated reductions in death rates from diabetes. And I said, you know, I said, are you not aware that there's an obesity epidemic going on in the United States, both among adults and then another one among children that's going to play itself out? If you're not aware of this, you need to be aware of it because diabetes is going to go through the roof. It's not going to go down. And I said, not only is diabetes going to go through the roof, mortality rates will eventually go up, especially from cardiovascular disease and stroke. And I said, you can't see it now because the people that are going to be exhibiting this mortality are at younger and middle ages, and it's going to take a while for the negative effects to begin to appear at the national level. But if you open your eyes to the health status of younger cohorts today, you can see it clear as day. The Centers for Disease Control at that point, I would interview them now and then and ask about your study, and they would say, oh, that's just an essay. It doesn't mean anything about what's really going to happen which is ironic now in 2017, fast forward from 2005 to 2017, where the CDC has acknowledged that the life expectancy has been flattening out and now it's dipped. It was not just an essay. <laughs> it was not just an essay. We had a window into the future that very few people were willing to look into. We said, look, it's clear as day. Just open your eyes, look at the data. This was not hypothetical. It was not an essay. It was based on science, and it was based on an evaluation of observed health attributes of younger cohorts. And I can tell you, by the way, that if you look at younger cohorts today, you still see something similar. It's not, it's not going away. It's getting worse in a way. Jay Olshansky, one aspect of getting worse that you have wanted people to be aware of 
is that it's not just that life expectancy is going down. The trends are not only is life expectancy going down, but the amount of time that people are sick on the way to dying is getting longer instead of shorter. Yeah, in some parts of the world that is true for sure. For some subgroups of the population, it's not getting worse, it's actually getting better. So keep in mind, um, we published this in 2005. We predicted that we would start to see this negative effect in about 10 years. It actually happened sooner than that. We were a little bit dismayed, but that's because the obesity epidemic got worse faster than we had anticipated. But what's going on with frailty and disability is also of grave concern. And we've already begun to see these younger generations, these children who acquired their obesity when they were, you know, 8, 10, 12 years old are now living with obesity for decades longer than their parents' generation. And now they're facing some health problems when they get into their 20s and 30s. And now we're beginning to see the rise of certain causes of death among this subgroup as they get into their 20s and 30s that was not anticipated earlier. So we're in a totally different scenario today than we were even back in 2005. And in some ways, it's worse. Now, Jay Olshansky, you're talking a lot about obesity, kind of like if you're obese, you got to get on obese. Obesity is causing diabetes. Obesity is causing heart disease. There are a number of experts, including some who were cited in your paper, including, what was it, Robert Lustig from University of California, San Francisco, who said, actually, obesity is not causing diabetes and heart disease. It's that the metabolic disorders that lead to an increased risk of diabetes and heart disease are also causing obesity. Which do you look at on this yourself? Uh, Well, look, um, you have to be cautious on how you're defining obesity. So obesity formally is defined as a body mass index of 30 or higher. But the mortality risk between 30 and about 33 really is not that much higher than people at a healthy BMI. It's when you get these BMIs up roughly around 35 and higher that the mortality risk is in fact significantly higher. In terms of which is causing which, I'm not quite sure it matters. I would suggest that it matters in terms of health policy in the United States. It matters in terms of what it's recommended overall people eat. It's recommended in terms of how people exercise. Those things vary some depending on what your perspective is. I think the bottom line message has always been and will always be to eat less and exercise more. It's not really that complicated. Now, will eating less and exercise more always protect you? The longer you live, the more diseases you are exposed to as a result of living longer. Now, the biological process of aging becomes the most important risk factor for us as we get older. That's one reason why you are so strong on saying growth hormones, other things that make people's cells go faster as they get older, you're really inviting cancer if you take things that improve how fast your cells divide so you can look younger and feel younger, you're going to get cancer. That's right. So introducing a growth agent into an aging body is a really bad idea. Keep in mind, the longer we live, the more our cells have progressed towards crossing a threshold of becoming cancerous. So if you introduce a growth agent into 
uh, older bodies, you're basically accelerating the movement of cells towards a cancerous state. And in fact, one of the main risk factors associated with growth hormone is brain cancer, but other forms of cancer as well. So introducing growth hormone is not a good idea. Some other hormonal interventions are also probably not good ideas. What about estrogen? What about testosterone? Those will help people feel and look younger. Well, look, all of the benefits, so-called benefits that are associated with testosterone, that are associated with growth hormone, which, by the way, include improved mental acuity, uh, increased muscle mass, better skin elasticity, I can actually give it to you for free right now. Now, do you want to know what it is? What is it? Exercise. I have heard that Stuart Brand, who is the founder of the Whole Earth Catalog and a number of other neat initiatives, I think he's in his 70s now. I've heard he's a CrossFitter. A what? He does CrossFit. That's a very high energy, high impact, free weight lifting way to keep your body more fit. Brilliant. You know what? If you can reach the age of 70 and 80 and you can do CrossFit workouts, more power to you. Sign me up. (laughs) Right after this call, my wife and I, we're both 63. We're heading out for a six or seven mile walk. I used to run, by the way, up until a few years ago, and I've replaced it now with walking in order to protect my knees and hips. But I can walk six, seven, eight, nine miles without any trouble. And the longer we can keep doing that, the better. If you can do CrossFit at 70, that is fantastic. Well, you are walking your talk. That's a good thing. I'm curious, do you eat a lot of fat? Do you eat no fat? Do you eat sugar, tons of sugar? Do you eat low sugar? Do you just watch your calories? What do you do? Me personally? Yep. Um, (laughs) I mean, you walk your talk with exercise. I try and exercise at least five times a week. I miss running, but I, I cut it out to protect myself. But walking is fantastic. I don't take any medications. None. Zero. I even try, if I can, avoiding taking Motrin or, or any medication. Well, of course not, because those will mess up your knee joints over time if you take a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yeah, look, my dad lived to the age of 96, uh, healthy up until eight days before he died. That's good. That's what I'm shooting for. Now, I, do I restrict myself in terms of diet? A little bit. So there are certain things that I don't eat at certain times of the day. So I've discovered how my body works. I avoid dairy, for example, after about six at night. I, for the most part, stay away from most wheat products, but that's really to help my wife who has celiacs, but I feel better when I don't eat bread. So I actually stay away from certain foods, especially certain times of the day. I've learned how my body works and when I can eat certain things and when I can't. It's not like your body isn't talking to you. It tells you all the time. Don't do this and don't do that because you get heartburn and, uh, you know, you have all kinds of other problems. Your body's telling you, please stop doing this. And I listen very carefully. But you'll drink a soda now and then. You'll drink juice. with. No, actually, I cut out all soda years ago. I cut out all artificial sweeteners. I cut out most forms of sugar. Eliminating sugar really had a pretty positive effect on my health and quality of life. But basically, I eat real foods. I actually try and stay away from anything that's in a box or in a bag. So I eat eggs all the time. I mean, I love eggs. I eat meat. I eat the fat in the meat. I have no problem with that at all. My favorite meat is Kobe beef, which is almost like eating foie gras. I have no problem with that at all. And you know, look, my father used to eat like that 
for 96 years. Hey, and I'm looking at you here as we're talking, and you're a pretty healthy weight. You look like you would pass for someone younger. Well, my face age comes in at, in the early 50s. I'm currently 63, but that's not unexpected. I come from a family of exceptionally long-lived individuals, and most people in my family look young for their age. It's very common. Well, congratulations on all of that, and congratulations for predicting. Well, actually, I really wish that you had not been right in your prediction in 2005. I wish we were wrong. But since you were right, I appreciate you sharing why people ought to still be listening to you. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Take care. I'm going to let you go ahead and walk your walk as part of your walking your talk. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Pleasure meeting you. Nice to meet you, Bye-bye. too. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that interview. It was Jay Olshansky, a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a world expert on the science of aging. Shelley adds that in recent years, some of Olshansky's research was raising concerns about rising deaths among substance abusers, yet another trend about which statistical analysis helped him to make early warnings. That's all for this edition of Hell on Earth. Our executive producer is Alejandro Soto. This week's show was produced by me, Alejandro Soto, and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ramana Vieira. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto.